Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And we're reading short and deep, a story called The Roller Coaster by Alfred Bester, first published in Fantastic Magazine, May, June, 1953. And um, I think we should probably give the premise or a brief plot summary of this very interesting and challenging story. I think that's a good idea. Um, One of the the astonishing aspects of this story, uh, something you'd expect with a poem, perhaps, but not usually with uh, certainly genre fiction, um, is that the story reads quite differently between the first reading and a subsequent reading. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the kind of genre fiction that, that, that most reminds me of is detective fiction, or in the case of the style of this Bester story, hard boiled detective fiction, sort of, you know, Dashiell Hammett kind of stuff, where of course on the first reading, you don't necessarily know who done it, but on the second reading, knowing who done it, you read it a little differently. Uh, and perhaps, if it's well done, more richly. And I think that's what's going on with the roller coaster. Uh, so it would be best for people, I think, to have read this once on their own. But once they have, then they then they have the premise. Then they get the premise. And the premise is that um, our main character, uh, someone named David, is in fact a time traveler from the future, a future in which uh, everything has become so easy and regulated that there are no thrills. So David comes back to our time. It turns out he has a companion time traveler with whom he keeps in touch, although they don't go through our time together, named Freda. Um, And David and Freda are here, we learn, to use us use our time period, meaning 1953 in New York, um, as a roller coaster, as an amusement park. And just like roller coasters that we would go to an amusement park where we get enormous thrills, in fact, we may get thrills at the most negative moments, like when the coaster has finally gotten to the top and then, bam, drops away, that same kind of negative fear that, oh my God, I'm falling, oh my God, death is near. That mm-hmm. negative fear is what gives the thrill to David and Freda uh, coming back to our time. And this is a story about uh, the discovery of that premise by one unfortunate present day, meaning 1953, human, um, and the march through our time that David and Freda have um, using us for their roller coaster experience. What's perhaps more powerful about the story in retrospect is that the premise isn't merely a plot setup. There is fine writing here that's trying to imply that there's a psychology at work in roller coasters, in our seeking of frightening amusements that is 
addressing deep needs in human beings altogether. Mm-hmm. And so this story, even though science fiction, um, isn't saying, oh, let's imagine the future. It is, in fact, as the best science fiction always does, asking us to learn something powerful about ourselves. Um, I think it's a terrific story. Mm-hmm. I, I, when I first read it, I, I just I said, oh, it's an Alfred Bester story. I've got to, I've got to read that. And um, I did. And then... I, uh, it's interesting because in the in the editorial introduction, it says something about, you know, uh, it, it gives you the feeling of having had the blanket stolen while you've been sleeping, and uh, I was thinking, oh, that's a weird feeling, is is disturbing, but also it leaves you cold, and that upon first reading the story is exactly what it does. It, it, when you realize what's actually going on, it's like. Very disturbing. I, I found it to be a very, very disturbing story. And I think it's so disturbing because what would make the future people so horrifically awful and sort of insensitive to the needs of other human beings and their lives, their lives and all that and, and just have them be uninterested in in their fellow human whether they're from now or i guess in the past and not knowing how we get there from here is i think what is the biggest fear in this story you know i think i'm sorry no go for it i i think you've put your finger on at least two crucial aspects of the story The first is whether or not the story itself, by being so disturbing, caters to that sadistic impulse that we as readers might have. I mean, the very first line displays that kind of uh, coldness that you talk about. I knifed her a little. When you cut across the ribs, it hurts like sin, but it isn't dangerous. The knife slash showed white, then red. She backed away from me in astonishment, more startled at the knife than the cut. You don't feel those cuts at first for quite a few minutes. That's the trouble with a knife. It numbs the pain and comes slow. That dispassion shows, when you think about it, um, both a sadistic side. I knifed her a little. Ah, You know. The trouble was it didn't get her bothered enough. But it also shows a masochistic side because he is speaking from experience. You know, when you knife, it doesn't hurt at first. and then it, So we have a kind of sadomasochism involved here, although David tends to be, it seems, more on the uh, sadistic side and Fredo, we later find out, is more on the masochistic side. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but they are a pair of sadomasochists. And from the very beginning of the story, we are glued to watching them perform acts of callous violence, which mm-hmm. in a way is a reading experience paralleling the experience being reported of enjoying in a complicated way acts of violence. So the That's story it. indicts us, it involves us, and it asks us, Maybe this isn't just people from the future. Maybe there's part of that 
in all of us, certainly in us as readers. The second thing that I think it's very important that you're touching on is the notion that this is what has happened to people in the future. And it occurs to me, I I grew up in New York, and I got to go to Coney Island uh, sort of whenever I felt like it. Um, I first went there by bicycle at the age of about uh, seven. Um, And, in fact, I was seven in 1953, the year this story is set. So I guess, you know, this is memory as well as uh, as fantasy for me. Uh, And I've got to say that with a city of millions and millions of people, there were only thousands at Coney Island. So the question that arises, this second point that I think you're touching on, is whether the characters, David and Frida, represent all of the people in the future, or just those people in the future who happen to want to use our present as an amusement park. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if we think of this, if we think of the sadomasochistic pleasures involved for David and Frida as being one point on a spectrum of possible relations to violence, uh, I think that it's possible for us to ask, what is the difference between imaginary and effective violence? That is, most people do seem to enjoy crime drama, hard-boiled detective stories, stories like Bester's The Roller Coaster. We go to horror movies. Um, a smaller group habitually go to uh, roller coasters themselves and mm-hmm. feel more bodily, that possibility of harm. Um, but those who actually inflict effective violence for fun you know, I just like to go out and beat people up. Um, they're really a very, very small number. And it's possible that the reason that David and Frida can walk sort of unnoticed through New York, even though one character, Eddie Bacon, seems to have figured out what they're up to, is that there really are very, very few people in the future who push their desire for violence this far, just as there are very, very few people in the present who push the attraction of violence this far. Although what the story is telling us is a whole lot of people really like this atavistic desire to be engaged in the thrill of the chase, the hunt, self-preservation, the past of us is what we see in children, Eddie Bacon says, who are, after all, the more frequent consumers of roller coasters and horror movies. Um, And it's existed us in the present, and it will continue to exist in the future. No matter how advanced we get technologically, there will always be us. And we'll never get that atavistic desire for the violent entirely out of human nature at least i think that's what the story is suggesting well there's there's um 
couple of lines. I I I considered that, but there is a, a one line, and it's what's so, what's so cool about this story. In addition to you know its amazing you know point of view, we're seeing it from the the mind of the monster. Um, is that the plot and what's actually going on doesn't come from the mind of the monster. It comes from some regular guy who's experienced these monsters. And he gives his theory as to what actually is going on. And and in that, it seems to indicate that that it's not just these two, right? It's The, the time travelers um, don't... Uh, let me read the lines here. Here's how it is. He says, um, I told you she loved it. They all love it. They come back here. The bastards like we go to Coney Island. They don't come back to explore or study or any of that science fiction junk. Our time's an amusement park for them. That's all. And then a couple uh, paragraphs down, um, loving and hating and tearing and killing. That's their roller coaster. Then one more paragraph down. All that stuff about the sudden upswing in crime and violence and rape, it isn't us. We are no worse than we ever were. It's them. They come back here. They goad us. They macerate us. They stick pins in us. And we blow our tops and give them their roller coaster ride. And just that that insight into, oh, violence is on the upswing, right? Crime is on the upswing. Why are they picking on the 1950s? Um, and if you were living, and I guess you were, in the 1950s and hearing about, you know, all this uh, crime on the upswing and how we got to crack down on crime and all that stuff, this is almost like an explanation that, you know, isn't a psychobabble, you know, sort of after the war, everybody was trying to fight conformity or, you know, some sort of thing like that. So this is a more um, simplistic kind of, but also more frightening kind of story. I think that's right. Uh, I, I, I don't disagree at all, but I think that the story gives us a lot of information about the fellow who comes up with that particular theory that mm-hmm. allows us to, uh, to try to decide how we want to take his theory. Um, mm-hmm. His name is Eddie Bacon. And he clearly, um, he's somebody that you want to, he, when, when Frida picks him up, she wants to bring home the bacon. Or I should say, even more importantly, when Liz picks him up, uh, she wants to bring home the bacon. Liz is his third wife, and it's the, uh, the target of David's um, uh, quest at the moment because he has the, the opening knifing uh, turned out not to be satisfying for him emotionally. Uh, that that two-bit, two-dollar whore, as he says that she was, um, just wouldn't get worked up. She just kept going, oh, please, David, please, David. And she just got, you know, meeker and meeker. It was no thrill for David. So he leaves her in a huff. Um, but he talks to Freda, and Freda had told him about one of Eddie Bacon's wives, Liz, and she looks like a hot prospect. So David is going to Eddie Bacon to try to find out uh, where Liz is. Um, and Liz, we find out, was his third wife. Um, Eddie Bacon says, when, when, when David asks about, you know, where's your wife, um, he says, which one? 
because they all seem the same to him. Mm-hmm. Um, he had married 18 feet of wife, right. six feet each. And then the word fathomless comes up. So we understand that you can be buried six feet deep, that fathoms deep is, in fact, something about the dead. Um, he married 18 feet of wife. He can't remember their names. He is, Eddie Bacon is, a miserable human being. Mm-hmm. Right? He wants a trophy wife. When he's pointed out to uh, David when he enters the bar where he's seeking uh, Eddie, we're told he's a short man. So what he's doing is looking for leggy trophy wives. And in fact, he's married three showgirls in a row, six feet tall each, quite tall for a woman, even today and certainly in the 1950s. So he's gotten these women. He says, Eddie says, I don't know why she didn't like me. I even took the kids to Coney Island. Mm -hmm. Right. So. But when he asks the kids' names, when he's asked, he doesn't remember the kids' names. He says, well, who knows what kids think? I mean, kids, they're not even civilized. They're only half human. Well, then we realize Liz was a showgirl. She wanted to bring home the bacon in order to, uh, to support her children. She had been doing it by displaying her body. Now she's willing to marry someone who clearly doesn't love her. But when she's told by Frida that uh, by telephone, uh, that Freda has been uh, playing with Eddie. Um, Liz gets angry and would have killed him if the gun hadn't been loaded. Had been loaded, and then storms off. So now she's on the loose, and uh, and David can go and find her. In other words, this Eddie Bacon is nothing but a meal ticket to Liz. But for Liz, she's a meal ticket. He's a meal ticket because she cares about her children. Mm-hmm. Eddie doesn't care about children, can't distinguish one person from another, uh, doesn't, he marries without giving it proper uh, uh, thought. And what does he do for a living? He runs a television show about murder, mm-hmm. right? So the fact that Eddie thinks that the whole future world is like Frida um, does not, I think, necessarily demonstrate that he is correct. It's, right. It is true that this exists in the future world, but that doesn't mean that the whole world is like that. Uh, now, the population of New York in 1953, I, I didn't look it up. Uh, by the time I was worrying about those things, it was about 8 million. Um, mm-hmm. But maybe in 53, it was, it was just the 6 million that's noted in the story. But when Eddie... Uh, has been locked up in this apartment, uh, presumably making enormous noise with uh, raucous and uh, violent lovemaking with Frida. Um, when the neighbors sort of call the cops and they break in, um, in fact, there's nobody there but Eddie. And that's why Eddie's been put away for a week in a psychiatric ward because he's got this crazy story about someone having been there. Um, he's figured out that she traveled away from him through time, which is why no one ever found her. Um, when they break in, they're all gawking at him. And he says, just like all the six million are always gawking. Mm-hmm. So he assumes that everybody in the city of New York is the same. But... Clearly, we do know that there's a range of human behavior. If there weren't a range of human behavior, it wouldn't be possible for David to reasonably say, well, these psychotics and these neurotics, they're not as good a target as some other kinds of people. And that's told us right in the story. So I I think that, that Eddie, too, 
is playing on an absolute commitment to what may be a strain in everyone but is expressed in different degrees. Some just like to watch a murder show, some like to go on a roller coaster, and some sadists and masochists actually want to perform or experience violence. Uh, so w- one of the int- interesting things that we, we know about the future is that at least some of the people are using time travel not for you know, to go back and kill Hitler or to study us in an anthropological way, but rather they are using it sort of as a, as a, an amusement park, a place where they can freely and without any difficulty get their jollies. Um, they can escape their crimes. But we also know that at least according to Eddie Bacon, that this is not a uh, some future thing only. He also talks about it being a prehistoric thing, a a thing coming out of the Cro-Magnons or the Neanderthals, as the time traveler corrects. Yeah. You see what I, yes, you it's, see it's, what it's, it's part of human nature. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's right. But um, since you, you bring up the Neanderthals... Um, I've got to ask, this is, there's something, Bester writes so well, um, so much works so well, and I I would extol one piece after another. Uh, let, let me just give one little piece that's right, so that I can then raise this question about, um, about the Cro-Magnon or Neanderthal uh, origins of our desires for violence. Um, Eddie is looking for Freda, excuse me, David is looking for Freda. He thinks she'll be in Gandry's apartment because Gandry is a guy that David knows Freda has been working toward the climax, um, which sounds sexual, but in fact is psychosexual in this kind of way. You know, um, as he approaches the apartment door though, Gandry's apartment door, he smells gas and he says, I knew better than to ring the buzzer. He takes out a key and turns behind him and touches the elevator uh, to discharge the the static charge. Mm-hmm. Then he comes over and, as he says, he barbers the lock, uh, which we would say he jimmies the lock. So he knew to discharge the electricity through a key. Um, the reason that you do that, I, I, I learned this as a kid growing up in an apartment building myself, um, is that if you hold a key, um, you have so low a resistance that you don't feel the electricity very much. Whereas if you just do it through a fingertip, you might actually get a shock that's uncomfortable. Um, interestingly, uh, here, since we ultimately come to know that David likes to feel violence, um, right. uh, he's doing this not uh, in order to avoid violence, but in order to, that is feeling the shock but so that he can get into the place without blowing it up. He wants to see what's going on before he uh, makes a move. So that's a very early scientific detail in the story that um, that David gets exactly right, which means that Bester gets it exactly right. <laughs> now, this Cro-Magnon thing, this origin of our love of violence, um, Eddie says, I took the kids to Coney Island. Never mind the kids, David says to him. 
where's Liz, which is what Ed David wants, someone to uh, play his violin games with. I'm getting there, Bacon said irritably. Coney Island's the damnedest place. Everybody ought to try that trap once. I like the fact that he's using the word trap. It's attracting us, seducing us by our desires. It's primitive stuff, basic entertainment. They scare the hell out of you and you'll love it. Appeals to the ancient history in us, the Cro-Magnons and all that. The Cro-Magnons died out, I said. You mean the Neanderthals. Well, David is correcting Eddie. Eddie mm-hmm. is saying that the, that the Cro-Magnons um, lived, but David says, no, the Neanderthals lived. Well, David's correction, it turns out, is exactly wrong. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, right, it's the, it's the Neanderthals who died out, or at least this is what was believed in 1953, mm-hmm. uh, before we had the DNA analyses that we do now. And it was the Cro-Magnons that managed to evolve into modern Homo sapiens, was what was believed in 53. So David's correction is exactly wrong. So the question then is, is this a mistake on Bester's part? Or is it a sign that David is cavalier about matters of life and death? Or that David has traveled through time and knows a truth that 1953 readers have wrong? Mm -hmm. Given the comment about electrostatic charge and place names, um, there are a whole bunch of place names. Right. Right. That that, that were recently renamed in New York. Like uh, Fifth Avenue becomes the Avenue of the Americas. Exactly. Uh, and I, growing up in New York at that period, um, I still always called it Sixth Avenue because that's what the grown-ups around me called it, even though the street sign said Avenue of the Americas. So um, David gets this stuff right. Uh, he gets all that right. He gets the electrostatic charge stuff right. And so I think that maybe the last option that I've just suggested, that David has been through time and knows a truth that we have wrong in 1953, I think that may be the right one. That mm-hmm. Bester is subtly letting us know that David, like all future people, knows stuff that we don't know. But that doesn't prevent the fundamental truth of Eddie Bacon's observation, that we all are primitive and we all have basic stuff, as he calls us, in us. So there's a conflict, or now I shouldn't put it that way. There's an amalgamation in this story between the possibilities of intellectual exploration, scientific knowledge, technological development, and a sort of persistent animal human nature. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, there's a line just after the ones you read that says, it's basic. It appeals to us the Stone Age flesh. That's why kids dig it. Every kid's a vestigial remnant from the Stone Age. And it's it's true. I mean, this is what I like to do uh, when I'm not doing podcasts with you is I go online and with 60 other people play war, right? I play war. I jump out of helicopters and shoot people with machine guns and, you know, get in boats and drive them onto the beach and blow up buildings and it's it's wonderful, but um, it's also horrific. But it's okay for me because all the people I'm doing it with are consenting, right? <laughs> it's it's they're all in it for the for the love of 
of the game, and nobody really dies. All the blood is digital, right? Right. Um, and yet, that's not how David and uh, Freda treat these people. That that's that's you know I've reconciled my Cro-Magnon or Neanderthal nature. Um, that vestigial desire to kill, 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 or be chased by Tyrannosaurus Rex. One of my friends loves skydiving, jumping out of perfectly good airplanes um, for no reason. <laughs> it seems to me a thrill that I could do without unless the airplane was definitely going to crash and was had no chance of landing. I, I just wouldn't want to do that. But I'm not everybody, and everybody's not me. So having... This insight, you know, in the way a novel can really put you in a world, this story can really put you in a world um, that is frightening and horrible, but pretty damn consistent. I, and it's it's disturbing. It is, because it's showing up. It, it is suggesting that um, that someone who plays war games is different only in quantity rather than quality from someone who wants to have war. Mm -hmm. That someone who enjoys fictional violence is different only in quantity, not quality, from someone who enjoys actual violence. Uh, I think that's wrong. I, I do think that there is a difference in quality. There's a philosophical difference between the uh, exploration of fictional violence and the uh, indulgence in effective violence. But I think the story asks us to really recognize that even if you want to make that distinction, they are very, very near neighbors. And uh, as you said, if the plane were really going to go down, then, you know, you might jump and you might not jump just scared. You might jump and think, whoa, this is a this is an interesting experience. Um, th the complexity of this is in our language. Use the word horrific, which has not actually wound up very much having its, uh, its contradiction built into it. But the word terrific has. Mm. Right? Well, I had a terrific time. You know, in its older meaning, I had a time full of terror. Yeah. But in its modern meaning, I had a wonderful time. Yeah. There is this monster chasing me. I had a monster party last night. You know, <laughs> a lot of these words have both sides to them. One of the things I love about the story is that attention to language that Bester gives. Um, I could give many examples, but perhaps the most conspicuous is the name of Freda, the, the female counterpart mm -hmm. of David. Um. Freda, F-R-E-Y-D-A. It is spelled out, in fact, F hyphen R hyphen E hyphen Y hyphen D hyphen A, right in the text. So the, the author is asking us to slow down, think about what this means. And at the point at which he says that, um, it says, like Freya, goddess of spring, eternal youth. In fact, uh, Freya um, is the Norse god of love, and it's the, she's the goddess from whom we get uh, Friday. And, mm -hmm. But as soon as that's spelled out, um, the question is, afraid of what? What you afraid of? Exactly. What are you afraid of? Now, the word Freya 
is also, Freda is also, by the way, um, a name. Uh, it's a name usually used in Yiddish. Um, it uh, comes from the German Freude, mm. uh, which means joy. So here we have in Freda, love, spring, rejuvenation, joy, and fear, right? Freda what? Well, we're all afraid of something. Apparently, the guy who or gal who wrote the editorial copy that you uh, cited earlier was afraid of someone in the bedroom without your knowledge. Hence, your blankets were stolen and it leaves you cold. But we're all afraid of something. Mm-hmm. And this is a story that lets us know that there's no getting away from it. The people in the future, we're told say, instead of goodbye, they say Sigma. Sigma, pal. Exactly. Well, Sigma, darling, I think, is what what uh, Freda says to Eddie, but the very last line, as you say, is Sigma, pal. Um, when David leaves Eddie to go you know, on his quest for Liz, I'm thinking, what is Sigma? What is Sigma? It could be just the initial of so long, but Sigma also means summation right in fact it's the the sigma in um in uh that we use in integral calculus it's the summation of all of the parts under the curve if you read the story from the very beginning it's set it it uses what's called the iterative aspect of language Mm -hmm. um right so i went to the store yesterday to buy a quart of milk I go to the store on Tuesdays to buy milk. The second one is the iterative aspect. And that's what we get when we hear David telling us about the things that he does, right? This happens with knives. This happens with pain. It's iterative. It's getting together all of the things that can happen and keep right on happening. But when you've summed them all together, then you've got what's called the perfective aspect. You know, the thing is done. And that's what happens when Freda walks out on Eddie. It's done. Sigma baby. And when David walks out on Eddie, he says the same thing to Eddie. Sigma pal. It's all wrapped up because for ordinary humans of 1953, it is. But for people who can travel freely through time, nothing is ever really done. Because everything can always happen again and again and again. Uh, by the way, when you ask about the, the violence, uh, Bester tells us at the beginning of the story in a note that he wrote it the previous summer, which would have been 1952, mm-hmm. which means he was writing it during the Korean War. Right. So not only do we have the, the recent experience of the most deadly, the most lethal war in human history – closely behind us, but we also had America having gone right back into war um, less than a decade later. And it's at that point that that Bester is writing. Uh, Surely there is something that seeks violence, um, and it is, I think, wrong. That Cavalier Sigma Pal, it's wrong to treat violence as a mere amusement. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, Sigma, Eric. (laughs) I agree, Jesse, although there is always more to say.